Have you ever wondered what happened to Lance Von Erich? Find out in his new book, Lance by Chance, Wrestling as a Von Erich. You'll read stories about Chris Adams, Ric Flair, and Billy Jack Haynes. And of course, the Von Erich family themselves. Get your book today on Amazon. You're listening to the Wrestleville Podcast. I'm your host, Vinny Berry, and my guest this episode is... Barbara Goodish, widow of Bruiser Brody, the legendary late Bruiser Brody. Well, thank you very much for Vinny for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure. And it's like I said, it's still unbelievable that he is still remembered for, you know, after so long, because as you know, we're coming up to the 35 year anniversary and we're still talking about him. So I know that he 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 would be amazed. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was a larger-than-life character. I mean, when he was on television, he was, I guess the best way that I could just, he was on, right? He I mean, was he, was, he yeah. was just he was just on. And it was like, if it's go time, he went, right? Exactly. And you know what I think it was? Because he always used to come home, and all he talked about is, all he wanted to do was to give the fans the best night of their life so that they enjoyed it. He said, they are the ones paying my bill. They are the ones that are coming to see me. I don't want them to leave and say, well, that wasn't a very good match. He said, I want them to go and talk about it. And I think that's why when he always went into the ring, he tried to give them a night that they would remember. And I know it worked because... I still have people coming out to me, you know, when I'm in my event, like I've got, what is it, Waterloo coming up and Charlotte and Vegas coming up. And what they do is when I first started doing these things, because I didn't do anything for a long, long time. And I just started probably 2014. I started reconnecting with my, uh, you know, my wrestling family. And I have these, these young boys or young men now coming up to me and they'll tell me all about him and everything and I'll ask how old they are well they weren't even born a lot of times before he passed and because of as we talked about social media and YouTube and because of some of the wrestling today they've watched his his matches and even though he wasn't here now they've actually they love his matches and they follow him. And I have this one little boy, he's only about 10 years old that I've met. And he, he can tell me he's got all his things. He's a fan. And it's amazing that he's he has become a legend that even though he hasn't been here, getting onto the 35 years, he is still getting fans from people. And the thing, the one thing that really gets me is when they show me tattoos. I mean, they have tattoos of him on their body. I mean, how can you get more of a legend than going around with tattoos of his face on their bodies? Right, right. If you ever saw him in person, and and even on television, right? I mean, he is some he is a wrestler that will definitely stick in your mind, right? I mean, I have I I can go back to memories. When I was a kid, 40, 40 years ago, when I was watching wrestling, when I was watching him in Dallas, and I can think back of like these 
certain moments of these these images of him are etched in my in my memory. He met Ivan Putsky in the gym. He'd just been cut from all, you know, he he would went up as high as the Washington Redskins, but of course got cut and went to other leagues, you know, minor leagues and everything. And he often said to, you know, if I'd put enough into football that what I put into wrestling, I would have been able to make it. But having failed, even though he got to the top, but he couldn't stay at the top because he didn't realize the work that went into it. And there were so many people out there that were better. You know, you get you get to these things, but you have to work at it like a job. So when he got into wrestling, he went to it. I've had my failure. Now, you know, I'm going to put my whole heart into it and see what I can do. And as we know, it worked. But it was Ivan Pusky, I know, that he met in the gym. He was between football. He was a sports writer. He'd, I fit one other place, and then he was at the San Antonio Express News being a sports writer, and he was thinking, well, what am I going to do? Should I be a police officer? Should I do this? And then he met Ivan Pusky, and the rest is history, who turned him on to wrestling. And then, of course, with the Von Erichs, the Von Erichs were like family to him because that was what got his start, and that's what sent him overseas, was a Fritz had sent him overseas. And that's how I met him. So it was kind of like, you know, it's funny how things happen. But, yeah, the Von Erichs were very, very instrumental in, you know, who he became today or yesterday. I wish it was still today. Right, right. I hear I hear what you're saying. And, uh, you know, what was the, obviously the working relationship with, with Fritz and the Von Erichs was, was good, right? I mean, he he worked there a lot. He worked in Japan a lot when, and of course he worked in Puerto Rico. He, I mean, he worked all over, right? Because he even went to Germany or Austria and uh, worked with Otto Vance, right? And then Israel. He went to Israel for it. I think that was with the uh, Von Erichs too. And of course, there were several of different places. There was what Kansas City with a. Uh, you know, with the Kansas City people, the St. Louis people, the, I mean, you, he, when you think about it, he worked all over. Paul Bosch in uh, Houston. So he worked all over, but what do you, what do you think it was? Uh, was there something special about Dallas that he liked? Was there something that he, did him and Fritz, uh, you know, have the same kind of wrestling to because he was Hello? there quite often? Yes, I think they, as I said, I've talked to, uh, you know, Kevin and that, and they think it, they thought of him as family. The kids thought of him as family because he was, he was there and he looked up, you know what I mean? He, they, I think in a way, because they looked up, looked up to him because, well, he was older. He, the way he looked, the way he worked, that they knew, I mean, most people knew that if they went in the ring with him, you could pretty much have a really good match. And I think that was important too, except, uh, but you left it to Frank and he would put the other person over because he said, why would I want to do anything that didn't make the other person look strong? Because that just makes me look weak. That, look, that just makes me, I just come in here and nobody can beat me. I want them to think that they can beat me, that there's, you know what I mean? Because that's what it is. 
it's it's meant to be a give and take. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I know the fans when especially in Dallas when when I was there, uh, I know the fans would flock when he was announced, right? When when he was announced on a card. So he was a draw. He was, you know, when you talk about wrestlers who put butts in seats, mm-hmm. Frank did it, right? Bruiser Brody did that. Yes, you're you're right. No, he did no matter where he went, he would. He had a following. And then as uh things changed, as you know, when uh the internet came in and then all these uh TV shows and the, you know, the cable, he he knew that he, that it was going to be different. So he knew that just going around that all of a sudden you're on tape and you're going to be seen by so many different people. And especially like when he went to Japan and that he would uh, come home and he would actually look at those tapes because he said you can always get better i mean he treated it like a job he treated it like a business so he was always thinking what could i do next you know what can i do to make it more exciting to make it more enjoyable for the fans and this is why people couldn't believe what a difference in the character he was in the ring and people that met him outside they couldn't believe what a soft-spoken gentleman he was. And another thing, too, if I, I have these young men come to me and tell me that they remember seeing him in an airport and they were so afraid because he was so big, he looked like this big monster, and they were really, you know, they'd hide behind their dad's legs, like, you know, because he, he looked different, walking through an airport the size he was back in those days and everything. And if he saw that, he would come over and bend down and talk to them. And they said to me, you know, it's like you can't judge a book by its cover. Like we always sometimes as humans, we judge people by how they look, not who they are as a person. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, you know, what what a lot of people think, and I mean, this is what wrestling is, right? This, This is what they do. They they put on this persona, right? And they put on right. this show, right? And so you, for the fans, they get to, um, you know, uh, go ahead and escape, right? For lack of a better word, right? And No, no you're right. No, that's a, that's exactly. And, and so when you see Bruiser Brody, you know, doing what he does on TV. Uh, yeah. How can you not separate that? Right. So what kind of a person was he? You said he was soft spoken. He's very, uh, you know, uh, gentle. All the guys that I, I, I've i talked to uh, that mentioned that worked with him uh, say so many just nice things about what a good guy he was. And, you know, what was what was that side of Frank that we might not have seen i think what it was i would say is that he never became bruiser brody bruiser brody was a character he created he never lost sight that his real person 
His real person was Frank Goodish. Frank Goodish was a husband and a father and a businessman. Bruiser Brody was his business. So I think that was one of the things, because as we know in life, a lot of people that get in the public eye, and it doesn't matter what kind of public eye it is, they really start to believe this character who is nothing really like the real person. And I do believe that was part of it, because when he came home, he'd turn the phones off. Oh, I think there would have been a lot of broken cell phones if there were cell phones in uh, his time. And he would, and we didn't have an answering machine, and he would just take the phone, and it was like, I'm home, I'm with my wife and child, and this is it. And then I've got my time off, like in the old days, you could go, you had a weekend off with the family, and then you'd go back to work. Now, as you know, everybody is in touch 24-7. So a lot of people don't even have that downtime because they're still doing work in the weekend if something comes up. So I think that was part of the reason that he he was Bruce Brody, and he was King Kong Brody, and so I think there was a couple of other, other things that were, you know, different names, but most of them are known as King. Uh, Bruiser Brody, except for King Kong, you know, that was like the St. Louis, Sam Munchnik, St. Louis wrestling territory back in those days because there was two bruisers. There was a Dick the Bruiser, Bruiser Brody. Well, you couldn't have two bruisers in a territory. And that's the reason that he became King Kong Brody. And it was like I would see it, you know, I'd drop him off at the airport, you know, when he was going, of course, these were the days you could drive, you know, go right up to the door. There was, you know, it was very simple back in, very simple back in those days. And you just drop him off at the airport and you could see him change. He would get out of the car as Frank and he went through the airport doors and he became, he walked differently with, you know, like he did go into the ring, he walked differently and he was a whole different character because all of a sudden, he was Bruiser Brody, even though, like I said, people would sit on the plane with him, and here he is reading the uh, the Wall Street Journal, and that's what everybody said, like I told you before, that he was so different. They still thought of him as this, who is this person? And then he would talk to them, and it was like, well, this is the same person that gets in the ring. So I think that was part of it, was he never lost sight of who the real person was. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because the fans uh, seeing him outside of wrestling, we know Bruiser Brody's not going to be reading the Wall Street Journal, right? Right. No, <laughs> Bruiser Brody is this character that who knows is just you know walking around the character beating people up. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. When when you hear stories from fans and people come up to you, you've already shared some about, you know, young young people who weren't even alive when he was, but, you know, people who, who watch him, what are some of the stories and the memories that fans share with you when you go to these these gatherings and these conventions? Well, like I said, like I said, I shared quite a few bit about the airport and about how people have started watching. See, a lot of a lot of the fans weren't even alive. So they only know him from the internet, you know, and YouTube. And the other people, they just, you know, just want to know. And I get to hear some really good stories from some of the other wrestlers. 
because he had a few that he mentored back in those days. Hacksaw Jim Dugan. I finally met him and his wife a few years ago, and he told me a story. And I think he tells us he tells the story too, because they were working together, and you know Frank would pick up anything. You never knew what blazes he was going to be that night because he'd look around the building or the dressing room and pick up something. And where he told this story, it doesn't matter, a chair, you know, anything you find, a garbage bin, something you can do, throw in the ring to make the match more exciting. Well, this one time he was with Jim, Jim went out and picked up the two-by-four. Well, what is Jim Dugan known for? The two-by-four. Yes. Which is, as I said, and he told me that. He said, that was Frank. He said, he just said, go pick something up. He said, I looked, I looked, and here was a two-by-four. I picked it up, and the rest is history. And there was a few, and John, John Nord, too, he has told me some nice, he thinks very highly. It's really nice, as I said, going to these fan fests and going to these events, because I get to see people that were with him and will tell me stories, and they're all really, really, really nice stories. Because, as I said, Frank sometimes was known for not being easy to work with. But it wasn't that. It was the promoters. Because like we said before, he knew how to make money. He wasn't just making money for himself. He knew, I can make money, but I can make money for the promotion as well. Because he'd go out there. I think maybe there's uh, one person that maybe, I don't know what kind of story he has, is that the famous... Uh, cage match with Lex Luger that people have talked about. I am familiar. I, I've i heard little bits and pieces. I mean, what do you know about that? Anything? I think, and this is what other other wrestlers have told me too, it wasn't, he was he was just starting off, I think, in the business. I don't know how, exactly how long. I mean, this is a long time ago. So this, He hadn't been in the business very long. Right. And uh, he went out there thinking, he could take control of the match. Well, you don't do that. Because Frank would have ta- would have put him in a really good light. But he went out there trying to call shots and trying to do things, you know, if you know what I mean. Right. And after that, after Frank tried to, what well, I mean, he was excited. I mean, he's out there with Bruiser Brody. The crowds are, uh, you know, crowds are cheering. I mean, you know how it is young people, you know, you first thing you're trying to get over. Well, you don't do that. You don't take control of the match when you don't know what you, when you don't really know what you're doing. Because Frank knew to go out there, he, he was prepared to have a great match, put legs over. You know what I mean? He wasn't going to take it all. Sure. But, well, the rest of, there's another one that you know exactly what happened when Lex tried to kind of take control. Then Frank, I think, just shut down. I think didn't Lex end up climbing over the top of the cage or something because he didn't know what was going to happen? Yeah, I think Lex was the one that took off because he was kind of because Frank just laid laid not laid down, but he just did nothing. And here's Lex, and and I think maybe he, as I said, because that well, the story I was told was it was Lex that took off. He climbed up over the rope and took off to the dressing room. So, you know, this happened a long, long time ago. Sure, but sure. But as I said, yeah, 
the nice thing is, like I said, is a lot of the guys, and like I said, this is why being with the wrestling family is so good because each time you go, each year you go, there's people missing because we're all getting up there in age and you get to see them one last time. And that's what, you know, really nice because you got the sheep herders, you, you know, with a nut kiwi. So we've got the sheep herders and you know what happens. You know, I call them the sheep herders. Right. Butch and Luke, because that's what they were. The bushwhackers over, you know, over here. And, uh, and I, and I think, like I said, that was, uh, you know, that's what happened is he just came over here. I think he wanted to see everybody one last time because I know he hadn't been well. But as I said, it was just, as I said, just a shame and just get to see. So I'll probably, I'll see Luke probably in a couple of weeks too. Yeah, he's coming up. And as I said, it's just, just nice, as I said, to see everybody. Because as I said, when it first happened, there was very few people that, you know, really kept in touch. Of course, Stan Hansen has always been there from day one. He, he's probably the best. And I've done another one. J.J. Dillon, I love J.J. He's another one. I've known these people for over 40 years now. And uh, Tony Guerrero. You know, there's quite a few that it's just nice to go see them because I know right now, you know, time is getting short for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we're not, you know, we're not getting any, nobody's getting any younger, right? I know, you know? and this is old-time wrestling, all the old-timers. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and what... What a lot of people really need to, I'm sure people in the wrestling business understand this very well, but the wear and tear on on a wrestler's body, I mean, is, it's a hard life, right? It's a hard physical, physical life. And a lot of the guys from Frank's era are, you know, have a lot of problems as far as backs and necks and, you know, things like that. Oh, that's. Most of them have had so many parts replaced because, as you said, and you have to remember, too, that a lot of the wrestling have been from football players. Well, if you know what football is, you're already beat up before you even get into wrestling. And then you have the wrestling on top of that. So, yeah, it's like, every, you know, knees and elbows and shoulders and, you know, it's a hard, hard physical life. And that's why I think having a beginning in football, whereas there's a lot of pain in football too. I mean, you think it was Stan and Terry Funk and Frank and Manny Fernandez. I think there were so many that went to West Texas State University back in the old days that ended up in the wrestling. Yeah, and, you know, that that's funny that you bring that up because I was talking about that too. I think – Ted DiBiase was there, I believe Tully Blanchard was there, and yeah, the, 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 the crop of guys that came out of that, that school that became wrestlers, and then also too, you think about, uh, there's a bunch of guys in Minnesota too, it's like, the water in West Texas and the water in Minnesota must be pretty good, because, you know, <laughs> the, the crop of wrestlers that came out of those two areas is, is, is something else, right? Right. So, as I said, yeah, so they were good schools. 
Because yeah. what it was, Stan has told me the story, you know, too. When he walked in, when he went, when he went to the college, walked in to see who his roommate was, here was Frank. They were roommates. That's how they met, was they were roommates in college. And wow. as I said, that, so that's a really long friendship, you know. So, but yeah, and as I said, now, like I said, with this new Power Town figure that has come out and then every, all this other social media and everything, I said, I, I am just uh, honored that people still remember him. And he has his own Facebook page. And in fact, I think he's got two Facebook pages. And and you know the beauty of that is is what is it? Bruiser Brody Wrestling's last rebel and then Bruiser Brody Hardcore before Hardcore, I think the other one is. I see I see pictures that I have never seen before, especially from Japan. Because I'll see him doing things like the stand or doing things in Japan that were not related to wrestling. And so it's really nice to see how it was in Japan and seeing him in the different different light, all these pictures that people put on these pages. And it also amazes me that I don't know how he could do the things he could do. I cannot even lift my leg that high. And I see the, how he did his big boot for coming off the top rope. I, you know, it's like he was a big man. And it's like, how, is it, how do you do that? This is a leg. I keep trying to put it up as high as he did. I've never been able to. Obviously, you miss Frank, but when you talk about him and you think back at him, you do these these shows and interviews. Uh, is it is it therapeutic in a sense? Yes, and what had happened is I kind of just went into I'm not so much a funk. I mean, Jeff was only seven when his dad died, so I kind of devoted my time to him. And really, except for Stan and a couple of other people, like I said before, I didn't really have anything to do with the wrestling business until all of a sudden, I think 2000, what was it, 2000? Oh, it's hard at this age. The years just go by so quick. It was Larry Mattisback, which was Herb and Larry and Sam Muchnick, the St. Louis connection, when he, there was a, a book had been bought out before, I, I can't remember his name, and I didn't do it because I didn't feel that there would be a lot of truth in the first book because I wouldn't have had any say. Well, then after that, Larry Mattisak approached me, called me up and said, look, I'd like to do a book on Frank. How about you do the personal part and I'll do the wrestling part? Well, I said, yes, even though I can't write. He said, don't worry about it. Just just write from the heart, you know, and I will do the rest. And I thought about it for a moment, then I thought, well, this might be what I need. So, yes, I just, see, when you tell the truth, there's no problem in writing or saying anything because it's the truth. It's people that kind of distort the truth a little bit that has a hard time remembering what they say. So... I just wrote my memories down, and you know that was probably the best thing that happened because all of a sudden I got it all out of my system, and I could talk about it. I could. It was it was therapeutic. I would have to admit, just getting it all up, writing it down on paper, 
talking about little Larry, you know, talking that, having that connection and everything. And I think that is really what really helped me was, you know, just just writing the book. And I knew that it would be truthful because Larry was one of uh, Frank's best friends but he always told me, if I have to trust or if you ever trust anybody, Larry, he is so truthful that I knew that he would tell the truth and I would tell the truth. So the book would be an actual real truth and not what a lot of books are when they come out and what people talk about is not. They embellish, I should say. They embellish a lot. So, yes, then I could kind of, I can talk about it now. Now it's like a third person sometimes. It's hard. I sometimes think, how did I go through that? You know, I, I, I think back sometimes and, wow, I must have been stronger than I thought, you know, because as you said, it was a pretty hell, hell to go through. And I had Jeff with me at seven years old. And But it's funny when you have to get tough, sometimes you just have to get tough, I suppose. So I just went through it. I don't know how, but I did. And everything, as I said, we got it all done and got back. And, and in fact, when I got back, it's nobody... I was there and I was there by myself in Puerto Rico because nobody knew. And so I had to deal everything, you know, by myself with a seven-year-old with nobody that I knew. And when I got back into town, a couple of people wanted to fly down. I said, look, I'm going to be home as soon as I can. It's, you know, I'll, I'll deal with it, you know. And got back and his friend had two kids it was a school holiday and he asked me he said you know what can we do and I told him I said you, you guys have to get back to work leave your kids with me because I knew that having three kids in the house it wouldn't give me time I'd be so busy and it'd be good for Jeff too instead of having mom coming back and realizing what had happened I would have I'd be busy so keep your mind busy sometimes to right. keep going because if you if your mind if you let your mind wander that's when it gets bad right so right. with three kids and yeah three kids in the house i was busy for you know that time that they stayed with me and like i said it was good for jeff because he had comp- you know company in the house and that's what got me through too so yeah i tell people and sometimes i'll say to people you know when things happen because things happen to everybody you know we all go through trauma in their life. If you don't, you're very lucky. You know, know, some people that are very lucky in life, you know, but a lot of us, as we see every day in the news, I mean, people are going through hell. And I always said, they said, well, how did you get through it? Well, I got through it because I had those kids in the house. And then I'd write a list of everything that needed done. And if I could just cross off one thing in that list, I had accomplished something that day. So, you know, it's not easy, but as I said, we uh, we have to learn how to survive. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I can imagine something like that, going through something like that, that, that something that did not have to happen, right? And for, for the, his tragic death, yeah, it's gotta be, it's gotta be hard to accept. And so how do you, how do you, 
how do you cope, right? And so, yeah, by what you did, yeah, you, you were just doing the next right thing, right? The next thing that had to be done, right? Feed these kids. Had to be these done. Kids, give these kids a ride somewhere, right? Yeah, going here, going here, there, and everywhere. You know, any theme park, go there, go here. And it just kept you busy because you were concentrating on something other. You didn't have time to let the other. But then at night time, the quietness and, you know, you know, you still do it. But as I said, there were three kids that were looking up to me for feeding and for this and that. So I had to put everything aside for a little bit and do that. And that's what helped. Because time is a healer. Absolutely. And, and time is, and I know people, and I feel so sorry for them, that they have never moved on. They're still in the past. So they are losing a lot of what life is about. Yes, we never forget. We never forget. But to live it every single day and never move on is is sad. And like I said, I've known a few people like that. They're, it doesn't matter. It's still in the past. There's no, you know, they haven't caught up. And I know it, it's hard and everybody does it differently. But as I said, there, there's a time and there's a time where, you know, that path, you go one way, you go the the negative path or you go the positive path. Right, right. Yeah, I, I remember when my sister passed away, I had a really hard time dealing with that. And I just, you know, I just remembered that, you know, well, no wonder I'm having such a hard time dealing with this because the relationship was good. Exactly. You, know? you always put them in a, a good, a really good part of your, you know, put really good part. Right. Like this morning I got up, I, I took the dog, I took the dog outside, it was sunny morning, and I could hear this singing, or this, this bird chirping, and I look up and here's this one red cardinal just sitting on the line. You know what they say, that a cardinal is a message, telling you that, you know what I mean, it's a message from somebody that's not here. They always say that, whether it's true or not. But it just was nice to see that cardinal sitting up there, you know, chirping to me. There was no other birds. It was just this little cardinal sitting up there. And it's like, oh, and I'm doing a podcast today. Okay. Did it make you feel pretty good when you saw that cardinal this morning? It did. It, it did because this has been... From Father's Day to the 17th is always a hard time because Father's Day was hard because my son was seven. He'd go to school and everybody was making Father's Day cards for their dad. And he didn't have his dad to make a Father's Day card for. And his his dad's birthday always fell. on. In fact, this year it actually fell on Father's Day, the 18th of June. So every so often, his dad's birthday and father's day would be exactly the same day or close by. So I always wonder, you know, from father's day up to the 7th of June, there's a lot of memories go through. You know, that's that's the time. And as I said, you don't forget. So, yeah, you get a little, little melancholy and you know what it is. So, you know, you know, okay, there's nothing wrong. Everything's fine. And there's not, you know, but. Yeah, you get a little melancholy at this time. So, yeah, it was nice when I looked up and saw that. Because usually a cardinal, there's always a female cardinal next to them. You know, but his is so red, just sitting up there on the line and just singing away, probably looking for, probably looking for a mate. Right. But I think it's, 
No, it shouldn't be. It's summer. What do you think the legacy that, I mean, because obviously there is a legacy. What do you think that legacy is? You know, sometimes I'll ask people, you know, what do you hope your your legacy to be? But Frank left a, like a huge wrestling, you know, legacy upon the wrestling world. What do you see it as? I just think his legacy is, you know, it's a very good question because so many people remember him. And I just think they remember because I go back again. He gave the fans the best night of their life. He put a lot of entertainment that they remember. And what he was, I don't, what he was going to do just before he died, he was going to work, he was working with a gentleman from the University of Texas in San Antonio. And they were going to do a skit. He'd already bought a wrestling ring from, uh, from uh, Blanchard because he, he ran the uh, San Antonio operation. San Antonio wrestling in uh, Texas. And what they were going to do, they were going to write a skit, and this was the time when DARE, you know, the, the drug program was coming into all the schools, and they right. figured out, you put a wrestling ring up in the school, you have Frank in there, and you're talking about the dangers of drugs. You think they wouldn't listen the way that he would present it? He would present it like a wrestling, you know what I mean? Right. Because because he had that powerful, powerful um, what do you call it, that people stopped and listened. Because his interviews, people have told me, I've seen a few of them, they they were powerful interviews that he did. So I could see him standing up there in a skit approved by the school boards and everything and do the help because I feel the kids would stop and listen to what he was saying. And another thing was we had a small property of land that was an old little trailer on it. And he was going to take uh, unfortunate children, you no know, children that it could turn the wrong way and have a little boys' camp. You know, take them out there and have a little boys' camp. Because a lot of kids, that's all they need is somebody to mentor them that can change their whole perspective on life. Because a lot of these, and this is kids back then and kids today, sometimes they don't have, you know, that, what, what's the word I'm looking for? That they, a mentor or someone to look up to? Right, someone to look up to. And you think they wouldn't look up to Frank? And, you know, I think Frank could have done, because he was already thinking about after wrestling, because as you were talking about the body, his body was starting to... Uh, run down and he wouldn't have wanted to go out and not be able to perform to the way that he's always performed for the people. And so he was already thinking of, I think he always would have been some part of wrestling, no matter what he would have been, like Stan, Stan is still, he's still, Stan's still going to Japan, making appearances and things like that, like some of them today in these fans, that you still go around, you're not in the ring, but you still go around and meet the fans. Yeah, kind of like and, an ambassador. Uh, yes, yeah, an ambassador. So I'm sure that's why he would. But he had other things that he was, you know, thinking about doing. And that involved the youth, young young men. And there's no doubt, which is really sad, because there's no doubt in my mind that he, he would have helped some of these kids. 
but never had the chance. It was all set up, ready to go, and then, of course, the unfortunate thing happened. And the unfortunate thing is that his life was taken in Puerto Rico as he was wrestling down there. So, yeah, very tragic and, and shocking, right? Right, as I said, you know, you think back of that. And that's why Vice, the dark side of the ring, as I said, I think they did a very nice, a little bit of embellishment from some of the people on there. But it, it was a pretty, it, they did a pretty good program on him. And the one thing they did, though, was they actually got Jeff. Jeff has never talked about anything. And because they were young and Jeff was getting along with them, they were young gentlemen that were doing the program, Evan and Jason, great, great guys. And when that, after they did the interview with me, they asked Jeff. Jeff was with me because we did it. We were in Austin, Texas. And they asked Jeff. And Jeff has never talked. And they asked him, well, would you say a few words? I couldn't believe it when he said yes. It was, uh, well, this is good. Because he's just starting to, you know, come out too. He blocked it off for a long time. And he said yes. But I think the thing that got me was when he, uh, when they asked him, what memories do you have of your dad? And he, he said something to the effect like, uh, well, everybody else has memories, but I don't. And I was like, oh, you know, it was like, yeah, that's true. You would... You were so young when your dad died. Yeah. Yeah, very young. Yeah, and when I talked to my nieces and, and nephews, they were young when my sister passed. And, yeah, the same, about the same answer. So, yeah, that that is sad, but, you know, um, deep down in his heart, you know. Oh, yeah, as I said, he, he knows now about his dad, and he knows now, and, yeah, he's a lot more. He's 40. He'll be 43 this year. My goodness, time does go fast. Wow, time does go by. Well, Barbara, I'm going to I'm gonna say thank you, and I'm, I'm going to thank you for giving me your time. Thank you for talking to me. Uh, I, I enjoy talking to you so much. It's almost like I had that feeling like, you know, felt comfortable talking to you like, like we – like we've done this before. I know. It was like when I saw you, as I said, I'm glad we got a little bit of, you know, one and one that I saw you and that. I'm glad that that was part of it. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Vinny. I really appreciate you sharing the memories of Frank, Bruiser Brody, and I know my listeners are going to enjoy listening to what you shared. So, Barbara, hopefully we can talk again and we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much, Vinny, and thank you to all the fans who still remember. It's a very, it's a pleasure for the family, and it's an honor for us to have you remember Bruiser Brody, Frank Goodish. Thank you. You're listening to the Russellville Podcast, where wrestling lives. Russellville.com presents The Book Lance by Chance, Wrestling as a Von Erich. Hear how he was discovered, what happened when he was at World Class, and the adventures he had when he left Dallas. Also available, The Pro Wrestling Vault, Volume 1 and 2. Read stories of the Northern Wrestling Federation, Jazz, Bobby Eaton, Thunder Rosa, Tracy Smothers, Harley Race, PJ Black, Bushwhacker Loop, The Fantastics, Ricky Morton, Scott Casey, Tim Storm, Kamala, Sal Renaro, Jeremiah Plunkett, Andrew Anderson, and many more. Get your books today at Russellville.com. Russell. Wrestle. It's, it's where wrestling, wrestling lives. lives.